I'm Bryce Miller. And I'm Jacob Schatz. And this is Talking Atlas. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Talking Atlas. Much to the joy of myself, Jacob, and Magic Slash Dungeons & Dragons fans everywhere, we now have the fourth installment in the Plane Shift series? I like to think of it as a saga. Can we use saga? The Plane Shift Saga. Yes, I am I'm down with saga. <laughs> the Plane Shift Saga, which is to say, we have in our three previous settings before Amonkhet had documents that were entitled Plane Shift Wherever We Are. There was Plane Shift Zendikar, then Innistrad, then Kaladesh. Each of them have been 25 to 45 page supplements that are intended to help you, yes, you there, also, Jacob, that you. There are lots of yous when we're talking. When we talk to each other, it's very confusing sometimes. I've confused <laughs> guests by saying, like, you, and also you, the viewer, and also you, the co-host. <laughs> anyway, we're already getting off track here. I don't think we ever got on track. Fair. They are intended to help you, the DM, create a setting where you can use D&D mechanics in a magic world. Plaintiff Dominket if you can count, is the fourth of these installments. Uh, Sorry, the the fourth installment in this saga. Yes, very good. And as always, we're going to take this block to talk about it. Before we dig into the real meat of the supplement, I just want to say thank you again to James Wyatt for taking the time to put this together. James Wyatt is a member of the creative team for Magic the Gathering, but he was also a Dungeons & Dragons designer for years, And he wrote one of my favorite books to come out of 4th edition, The Dungeon Master's Guide, which has a lot of advice whether or not you're running a 4th edition game, which you probably aren't by now. He writes the Plane Shift supplements pretty much of his own accord. He was the one to push for it, and he's really been the only contributor to go through all four of these. This one was written with help from Ashley Hope. Wyatt starts us off with an introduction, as he always does, talking about some of the struggles that he takes when making any individual plane shift supplement. The tough part of plane shift Amonkhet is that where the three other worlds that we've visited so far have some link to the way that Dungeons and Dragons worlds have been made in the past, Amonkhet really is its own beast. Zendikar is adventure world. It was intended to replicate a D&D type setting, so that was an obvious first step to make a supplement like plane shift. Innistrad happened to come out at the same time that Curse of Strahd was being made in Dungeons & Dragons. Curse of Strahd takes place in Ravenloft, which is more or less Innistrad. It's full of all sorts of things that get a bump in the night. It's the D&D gothic horror setting. So, making a plane shift supplement really just meant taking a lot of things that worked well in Curse of Strahd and repainting them for Innistrad. And you might recall that when we discussed the Innistrad plane shift supplement, we talked about the large section in the back that described how you could reskin the Curse of Strahd adventure to take place on Innistrad with relatively little effort. Then came Kaladesh, which admittedly was a lot different compared to Zendikar and Innistrad, being a world full of artifice, and artifice not usually being typical D&D fare, but there are some exceptions. Worlds like Eberron, which are very popular among certain sects of the D&D fanbase, have artifice and artificers as characters, so they could at least take inspiration from that when working with Kaladesh. Amonkhet is an ancient Egyptian-inspired setting with a healthy dash of bolas thrown in for flavor. 
there's nothing quite like it in D&D. Maybe you could draw from a setting like Dark Sun to replicate a harsh desert environment, but there's nothing like the Trials of the Gods. There's nothing like Nicol Bolas. The first real section of the Plane Shift Amonkhet supplement is the world of Amonkhet, which covers most of the ground that you probably already know if you've been paying attention to the storyline or if you have acquired the art book, which I actually don't know if it's... Is the art book out yet? I believe it is out. I believe you can purchase it. Okay, so it's a little bit of a stripped-down explanation of what Amonkhet is. For starters, Amonkhet at the start of Amonkhet block, and we're going to say Amonkhet so much in this episode, <laughs> at the start of Amonkhet block, the plane is not much more than the city of Noctamoon. At least that's all we know. It's this one little city. It's got the Luxa River, which is an analogy for the Nile, and it is surrounded by the magical barrier called the Hecma. It goes on to explain the reason that Bolas came here and repurposed the plane. We now know that he captured and sacked away three of the eight gods, repurposed five of them into gods to man these trials, and people running through the trials would be turned into undead that he could eventually use for an undead army of really, really excellent warriors. This means that the five trials are a central piece of life on... Now, it's hard to say, Amonkhet, Noctamun, we don't actually know what's outside of the area around Noctamun, except for very vague hints like Crested Sunmare. But at least for Amonkhet, as we know it, the trials are more or less everything that you do if you are a person living on Amonkhet pre the events of this block. You can also be a vizier, but we'll get into backgrounds later. Another key element of Amonkhet's planar identity is the Curse of Wandering. If you die on Amonkhet, you spontaneously reanimate. You just do. It happens. If you're lucky, they build you a cartouche and stick that on you so that you behave when you wake up. But if you're outside the outskirts of the city, you just sort of lurch. The first mechanical section in the world of Amonkhet goes into character backgrounds. And this is a section that I've kind of discounted before. I didn't really see a whole lot of value in codifying your character backgrounds. But I find it to be very useful for Amonkhet. With the untrained eye... Amonkhet citizens, Noctamun citizens, feel kind of one note. You are born, you get raised, you learn to fight, you fight in the trials, you die in the trials one way or another, and then you get turned into the anointed. There's not a lot of room for character uniqueness in that inherent premise. So the section here for character backgrounds has three different identities that you can take on within Amonkhet. There are the initiates, who are the ones going through the trials, the viziers, who are helping the gods to administer the trials, and then the dissenters, who have turned away from the trials. Each of these backgrounds includes a mechanical feature, and I actually kind of use mechanical loosely here. All of the features for your character backgrounds are in-story things that you can have. It's not an extra die roll that you get, it's not some points here or there, it is a part of your place in the world that you can take advantage of. For example, if you are an initiate in the trials, you don't have to worry about food, you have a training regimen that you have to adhere to, and if you go outside that training regimen, people are going to look at you funny. But otherwise, you have resources that you can draw on as an initiate. Then the part that I usually gloss over is vital to defining your character in Planeshift Amonkhet. There are four different characteristics that you can work with in 5th edition. There's the personality trait, there's the ideal, there's a bond, and there's a flaw. Personality traits are just a little piece of who your character is, what kind of outlook they have in life. 
ideals are what they strive for, bonds are a relationship that they have with someone else somewhere in the setting, and flaws are flaws. They're a thing that's going to drag you down if you let it. The amount of story stuffed into the sections here for traits, ideals, bonds, and flaws is honestly astonishing. If I might travel a little bit far afield, the structure here reminds me a lot of the structure of things like, oh, I don't know, let's say Harry Potter, The Hunger Games, uh, probably the world of Divergent, though I'm only passing familiar with that world, uh, because all of them are fantasy settings, uh, characteristically a little more young adult. Harry Potter is a bit universal, but somewhat young adult oriented that all involve a world with a particular structure. In Harry Potter, you have the kids going through wizard school at Hogwarts or somewhere else. In The Hunger Games, you have there are the 12 districts that are each meant to do a different thing, and then every year some people get chosen to go do The Hunger Games. Right. And in Divergent, it's that you you end up in these different kind of casts based upon features that you that you embody, that you find important. And I think that a large portion of the appeal of those, are, well, two, two main things. For one, your consumers, your viewers, can see themselves in the world in a very particular way. They say, ah, in this world, I would clearly be here. I would clearly fit in in this district. I would be a Gryffindor. I would be a... I don't remember the names of the cast, so apologies, Divergent fans. <laughs> the other side is that it gives your world a very clear story structure. You know that Harry Potter broadly is Harry Potter going through each year of his school at Hogwarts, and it breaks off some toward the end. The Hunger Games, the first book, is the structure of someone going from their district into the Hunger Games and then conclusion. And honestly, the second book is mostly the same. Spoiler alert. And that is what these backgrounds to me kind of are. Amonkhet is a uniquely rigid world as far as magic goes. Kind of the point of Noctamoon is that it is not like Girapur on Kaladesh. It is not like the late Seagate on Zendikar. And it is certainly not like Innistrad, where you can have dozens of different lifestyles on those planes, even in a single city. In this city... You are either an initiate, a vizier, a dissenter, or an undead. <laughs> so what's defined here is everything you need to be someone in this world, and also that opportunity for players to roleplay, whether it's in a way that they find authentic to themselves or a way that they want to experiment with. That is how this world is rigidly defined. They can see an option, they can go with it, they can follow the progression. And I think that's probably going to make this a little bit appealing in different ways compared to other settings. The features and backgrounds provided for the Vizier and Dissenter take that one-dimensional world of being an initiate and explode the possibilities of what your characters can be and what they can do. The Vizier background has a feature called Voice of Authority, which kind of elevates them from the caretakers of the initiates that we see them be in Amonkhet and describes them as the voice of their god, qualified with, at least in theory, which I, kind of, <laughs> I find that really funny. That's pretty good. <laughs> the voice of authority feature allows viziers to have, well, authority over initiates. You can direct them in their tasks. You can ask them to do things, and they are expected to obey you because you're speaking for the gods. The characteristics for viziers are even more incredible because of their interplay with some of the characteristics from the initiate background. The initiate background has a bond. Seven words. I am in love with a vizier. This is an option that you can take 
for your, your bond, your relationship with another character, if you are an initiate. The vizier has a similar option, but it's not a bond, it's a flaw. The flaw option for the vizier is, I am in love with an initiate, and I want to shield this person from death in the trials. The fact that this relationship is described in both sections, but with wildly different ramifications, depending on what your status is in Noctamun, is incredible to me. I love this little feature. I almost feel like you could take this section on its own, and you have a story machine. You have a little tiny story machine to roll on these different dimensions, and... Okay, now I might have this in the brain because Jacob and I have been playing a, a hidden roles role-playing game, tabletop game <laughs> recently. But this looks like it would be a great basis for hidden roles games. Yeah, actually. There's a lot of different unique character traits, and they all have interplay with other aspects of society. And the final background is that of the dissenters. We already said there's the system of trials, which is run by viziers and done by initiates, Necessarily, you must have the dissenters that are outside that system. The dissenters trade in their other benefits and features for a feature that is called Shelter of Dissenters. The idea being that other dissenters will help out other dissenters, maybe to their own detriment or possible death. The interesting thing about the dissenter feature to me is that backgrounds like these are usually meant to be taken at the beginning of character creation. You have these things, they define who you are, and then for the rest of your character's lifespan, you just kind of have these effects. Sure, maybe your personality might change, you finish up a relationship in some way, so your bond might change, or you find another bond, but your feature usually sticks with you. You don't stop being an entertainer, or a hermit, or an acolyte, and you always have access to your feature. The dissenter functions a little differently, though. You could start as a dissenter, or, if you are identified as a dissenter, you immediately lose your other benefits and have to take the Shelter of Dissenters feature. If you go outside of the system and are identified for doing so, it doesn't matter who you want to be, you are a dissenter now. That's Noctamoon. Getting into our next section, the races of Amonkhet. I will start us off by talking about humans, because there are humans here. There are humans almost everywhere. Yep. Most of the people I know are humans. They're pretty cool. As role-playing goes, they're usually kind of the vanilla of the role-playing world. So now, Jacob can talk about the Avon. Bird people! Bird people! The Avon have not been featured in a plane shift before, so I'm very excited to see them here. We have two different kinds of Avon that you can be on Amonkhet. First is the Ibis-headed Avon which get an extra bonus to intelligence, and also have Kefnet's blessing because he likes his ibis-headed friends. Or you'd be the hawk-headed Avon, who follow Aketra's example of solidarity, and are really good at seeing things. The fact that the trait they have is called hawk-eyed hurts me just a little bit. A, a I teensy, love it. teensy bit. Also, if you are unsure what we mean by ibis-headed, Kefnet. Kefnet is an ibis. So really, really long, elongated, thin head, that's what the ibis head is. And the hawk, you, prob you probably know what a hawk. Yeah, we're fine. You're good. You might, you might have seen a hawk. Yeah. Tell me of these mystical beasts called a hawks. I mean, we joke, but then again, you and I are from a part of the world that has a non-zero quantity of hawks. That's true. I'm sure there are many regions where hawks are a bit more of a rarity. Hey, you know what nobody has in their region? Kenra. Kenra? Hey! <laughs> I can't believe we both thought of the same thing that was the next section. Weird, right? Yeah, I know. 
So something that I think neither Jacob nor I were fully aware of before the supplement, quote, nearly every Kenra is born a fraternal or identical twin, and a pair of Kenra twins forms an extremely close emotional bond unknown to most other residents of Amonkhet. That's so weird. That's so cool. That's a really cool trait for a fantasy race to have. Between the Kenra and the Etherborn, Wizards is proving that they can repeatedly make really interesting fantasy races. Oh, the implications of Kenra being twins on Amonkhet is heartbreaking because you have this intrinsic connection to another person and your world forces you, if that connection is strong enough to survive all of the trials, more often than not, the twins have to face each other in the final fight in the trials. Oh, man. That's the worst. And you know that before Bolas got to it, this was a great loving thing for Kenra to have. And now it's just being twisted and made nasty by his terrible, terrible will. And even if you don't both make it to the end of the trial, we've already determined, unless you're a dissenter or a vizier, as a Kenra, one of you is going to die before the other does, unless you happen to somehow both survive the trials and make it to the end and be killed by Hazret. There's no winning here unless you are Kenra dissenter twins which some would argue is not necessarily winning. <laughs> Being a twin is so intrinsic to the Kenra lifestyle that there is mechanical, I say benefit, there's a bonus, but it changes based on the status of your twin, which I find very cool. The Kenra twins attribute says that if your twin is alive and you can see your twin, whenever you roll a one on an attack roll, ability check, or saving throw, you can re-roll the die and must use the new roll. But if your twin is dead, dead, or if you were born without a twin, you can't be frightened. For a minute, I was questioning the exact wording of, if your twin is alive, and I was gonna be like, well, of course, and then I realized that it would be really horrible <laughs> if it just said, if you could see your twin, and like, oh yeah, their body's over there, yeah, I can, I'll be fine. I feel, <laughs> I feel reassured. Oh, no. Their corpse is over there. Ah, uh, that's, okay. That was, that was where my mind went. Um, oh, goodness. Just on a slightly more positive note, I want to draw attention to the fact that this is the second time in this plane shift that there's a feature that I, as a player, and as someone who's read through the D&D books, had considered immutable that can change through the course of play. This is cool design space that I haven't seen in any D&D products so far. Do you mean specifically the Kenra Twins trait? Yeah, Kenra Twins being a, a racial trait that can be altered through the course of play. And then the initiate to dissenter pathway that you have in the character backgrounds. These are things that you usually pick a character creation and then just have for the rest of your character's life. But on Amonkhet, and in the context of the trials and of this life that's been set out, things still change. Things are still dynamic. And that's reflected in the rules, which is, it's cool design space to play in. Next up in the race list are the Minotaurs. Pretty straightforward here, Minotaurs are the bulky warrior-type race for Amonkhet. One of the points that stood out to me in the Minotaur section, though, was that Minotaurs take a long time to mature, but then have a very short lifespan comparatively to other races. They stay kids longer in a world that doesn't really value having a childhood, and then they have short lifespans in a world that immediately shortens your lifespan simply by living. Otherwise, pretty straightforward. They have a horn attack. They hit real good. They're about what you'd expect from a Minotaur. Going on now to my favorite 
snake people who aren't actually type snake. I'm not bitter. The Naga. <laughs> You're bitter. I'm, yeah, I'm bitter. I'm very, I'm very bitter about it. <laughs> My snake tribal deck is very unhappy that the Naga exists. Anyway, they are still pretty interesting. In another instance of this supplement telling me things that I didn't realize were true of a race on Amonkhet, quote, the Naga believe in a principle called the sweetest harmony, which describes a perfect balance between the body and the mind. This colors the way that they, ha, colors, they're blue and green, the way they view <laughs> the world, and also colors the relationships they have with the gods. They consider Kefnet and Ronas to be existing in harmony of some kind. Combat-wise, the Naga have knowledge of poisons, which makes sense since some of them are presumably poisonous, and have a couple of snake-type abilities. There's a speed burst. You can lower your body to the ground and move more quickly for a time. You increase your walking speed by five feet until end of turn, so long as you have both hands free because you need to, you know, put them down to slither. You also have two natural weapons, those being your fangs or your ability to constrict something which deals bludgeoning damage and also restrains the target. Finally, you are immune to poison, you can't take poison damage, and you have a proficiency with poisoner's kits. The next section in Planeshift Amonkhet is labeled Trials of the Five Gods, but what it really is is the first time that they're offering a lot of different class archetypes. Admittedly, these are just five archetypes based on the five gods for clerics associated with those gods, but the last time that we got anything akin to a class archetype was in Planeshift Kaladesh, where Chandra's pyromancy got a tiny little side note blurb way away from the rest of the text as if to say, hey, maybe you might like to try this one. And I'm glad that they heard me when I yelled, yes! <laughs> a little background on what this means properly in D&D. Each class in the player's handbook has a set of archetypes that they can take the first benefit of which you get usually in first to third level. You pick an archetype, you stay with that archetype for the rest of your character's life, and it defines what type of your class you are. So for clerics, it's what god do you worship, what do you value, what divine principles do you embody. In this case, each of the cleric archetypes listed in this supplement is based on one of the five gods of Amonkhet. Four of the gods have new domains written for them. The fifth one is Kefnet. Sorry, the knowledge domain was already in the player's handbook, so they just kind of used it. And that's fair. It made sense. But the others are named off of their attributes that their god embodies. Solidarity, strength, ambition, or zeal. Jacob, something I wanted to ask you as someone who has more context on the fantasy world of Dungeons & Dragons than I do. Sure. Do you think these domains, these, these cleric backgrounds... Are they a response to what we talked about earlier with Amonkhet being a different D&D setting? Because what I'm seeing here, we agree that this is something that is different and more detailed than we've seen in any previous plane shift supplement. The actual outlining of like, here are things that your how your character evolves over levels, both in terms of like spells and abilities they have, as well as innate characteristics. You could use any one of these for an entirely different playstyle. Do you think that's a response to Amonkhet being a different beast than the previous ones as far as D&D gameplay is concerned. I think it's a combination of it being different from D&D, but also different from other magic settings. Okay. With the former, I think it is very beneficial to get some background on what types of powers are afforded the viziers. We don't see them in action a whole lot, and we're not you're not really sure where to place them. Like, is a vizier of Bantu a warlock? I mean, they could be, but what 
kind of warlock would a vizier of Bantu be? Does it fit neatly into that because you're still deriving power from a god, admittedly one that's kind of mean? These features give us more insight into the characteristics of what it means to serve a god on Amonkhet. Whether you're initiate, whether, whether you're a vizier, these are the powers that are afforded to you when you have the god's blessing. And I keep saying the word god here because that's what makes this different from other magic settings. Magic settings don't typically have gods. The first time that we got gods in magic was during Theros. And people were pretty happy about them coming back in Amonkhet one way or another. So if there were any place to do specifically cleric class archetypes, Amonkhet is probably the one to do it. There are mono-white clerics maybe on Zendikar, but on places like Kaladesh, not a chance. Oh, while I'm thinking about it, there are almost certainly clerics on Innistrad, but there are a more different kind of cleric. Right, right. And they definitely trend to be either the white mana cleric who is on the side of, of angels and helping to defend people, mm -hmm. usually humans, or you have the black alliance cleric who usually is going to be a vampire or in cahoots with some demon. You don't generally have green or red or blue clerics as much. Right. Also, just to confirm, I did a quick search, and there are indeed no creatures with type cleric in either Aether Revolt or Kaladesh, which makes sense because we talked almost not at all about what religion there is on Kaladesh or higher beings to believe in. There's a little lip service to it paid in the art book about the idea of the great cycle and a non-theistic religion, kind of. Yeah. But it's, it's not a big part of everyday life on Kaladesh. Whereas it defines day-to-day -day life on Amonkhet. Mm-hmm. Brief tangent. While you were describing everything about the gods, I was also looking over Chase Stone's images that are in this book here. I, I've said it before. I want to say it one more time. Chase Stone did an awesome, awesome job of drawing the five monocolored gods, giving them an appropriate sense of scale, intimidation factor, style, all of it. Very, very good. Someone has to sew their clothing. I was taking note of the fact that they all have a distinct weapon of some kind. I was looking at Kefnet and his, like, his, like, haft, his, his large spear-type object, and then I saw how his, his clothing wrapped around it, and I went, wait a minute, someone had to make Kefnet clothing. Probably lots of someone's, actually. <laughs> I, I don't know where to begin with that. Did the clothing just instantiate with the god? Did... Did the gods come from anywhere? Did the anywhere that the gods came from give them the clothing? Were they originally naked in the Garden of Eden? I don't know. How do you think that story ends? Because it doesn't end with Adam and Eve becoming gods. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I don't know when the last time was, if ever, we've made biblical references on an episode of Talking Atlas. Yeah, I... But I mean, if you're going to do it anywhere, it's on a plane full of gods. Yeah. Back to the actual supplement. <laughs> yeah, now that we've planted that seed in your head. Hmm, where's our clothing come from? Yes, please continue, Jacob. <laughs> the domains are pretty generally linked to the color. Solidarity domain just feels like white magic. There's no specific healing bent towards it. There's no bonuses giving bent towards it. It's, it's just whatever a white mage could do in a Magic the Gathering setting, the Solidarity domain gives you access to some of that power. The strength domain is a little bit different. This is Ronas's benefits. It feels almost like a druid in some ways. The spell list, at least, includes 
such things as protection from poison, dominate beast, stone skin, insect plague. These are not typical cleric fare. But it does make sense as to, at least in my mind, as to why a cleric would have these abilities. Because a druid on Amonkhet is possible. We ha- I think we saw a couple of druids, but if you are a vizier, it means that you're a devotee of a particular god. So if you are a vizier of Ronas, you have to be more committed to him than you are the concept of nature or a nature spirit. And most of the other benefits that you get for being a disciple of Ronas are about increasing your strength. Because that's a stat in D&D and also the thing that Ronas cares about. That just makes sense. Sometimes these things work out. The ambition domain from Bantu is pretty weird, I gotta oh, say. Oh, I love it. I it's, love it. Oh, it's weird. Because this is something that falls neither into a D&D camp nor a magic camp. It's just sort of its own beast doing its own thing. And gosh darn it, that's what Bantu would want. Clerics have an innate ability, regardless of what path they choose, called Channel Divinity. It's a feature that you get every so often. I think it regenerates with a long rest. And you can use it to power up one of your specific cleric features. Bantu's Channel Divinity unique power is Invoke Duplicity. Starting at second level, you can use your Channel Divinity to create an illusory duplicate of yourself. Alright, Black Mages, sure. You just get... You get illusions and you get duplicates. Two very blue things. It's D&D. Everything is made up. But where it does make sense is for Bantu's domain. For someone like Ronas, it's very straightforward to say, ah, yes, god of strength, let's buff our strength. There's no ambition stat. There's no backstabby stat. So I, I absolutely love that they've created a background to give you the backstabbiest, most duplicitous character possible. In some ways, literally, you can make a duplicate. You are duplicitous. That is so adorable. Someone somewhere wrote down the Invoke Duplicity Channel Divinity name and just went for it. They said, this is too good to pass up. The final domain added for Planeshift Amonkhet is the Zeal Domain for followers of Hazaret. Again, not a whole lot of direction on this one, which makes sense because it's mono-red, supposedly. There are some damage bonuses, there are some fire spells. There's getting real jazzed up to fight. On that note, it also has a very strange final reward. It's called Blaze of Glory, and I'm going to read this whole thing to you because it's really... I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around this. Starting at 17th level, you can delay death for an instant to perform a final heroic act. When you are reduced to zero hit points by an attacker you can see, even if you would be killed outright, you can use a reaction to move up to your speed toward the attacker and make one melee weapon attack against it as long as the movement brings it within your reach. You make this attack with advantage. If the attack hits, the creature takes an extra 5d10 fire damage and an extra 5d10 damage of the weapon's type. You then fall unconscious and begin making death saving throws as normal, or you die if the damage you took would have killed you outright. Once you use this feature, you can't use it again until you finish a long rest. It's quite bizarre to me that the highest level thing this domain provides to you is the option to really ruin the day of the thing that is probably killing you. You have to wait until you're level 17 before you can go, that thing that almost killed me, I'm going to really, really kill it and then maybe die. I am of two minds on this feature. The first mind is that, well, if you're 17th level, you're probably dealing a lot of damage to it anyway, and this is mostly just making the best of your character 
dying. So the extra damage is nice, but it's not necessarily going to make a huge difference once you're at the very end of your character progression. On the other hand, how cool would it be? How cool would it be? Oh my god, you just turn into a fireball when you die. You... you, 10d10 extra damage. Oh my god, that's the coolest thing that I've ever heard. Okay, yes, it is really cool. (sighs) Made slightly less cool by the fact that you are... Like, the thing you get at level 17 for Bantu was improved duplicity. You can create up to four duplicates instead of the one you could make before. And that's super useful. That you can use all the time, I'm sure, to great effect. It's weird to me that, by contrast, the last thing in Hazard's progression is you die gloriously, which I guess makes sense, but is a lot less appealing. I I look at it this way. The vast majority of campaigns that start at level 1 really only make it up through 10th to 15th level. And that takes a while to get through. If you get to 17th level in a campaign, you have spent a lot of time with these characters, probably, unless you started further on in your progression. But more often than not, by the time you get to 17th level, your race is pretty close to being run. So, sure, you could get a really useful power for your already 17th level character who's fit to burst with useful powers. Or, you could get the best way to retire this character ever. You could take this feature. You could go up to fight the biggest, baddest thing that you could find. Just ask your DM to go send you up against a demon prince or something. Single-handedly. Why not? Make it a real challenge. And then go and try, and even if you fail, even if you lose, you get to explode into a massive fireball that has a pretty good shot at finishing off this thing for good. As the last act that you get with this character that you have devoted a long period of time to, you can definitively blow up the thing that you were trying to kill. It it does sound like a, a really cool story moment. It, it definitely does. I guess the min-maxer in me is saying, but it's not very good. Well, sure, you only get to use it once. Yeah, it's good for nuking that one thing you really want to nuke. Anyway, we can talk about preference of role-playing styles later. We should probably get on to the bestiary. Yes, the first page in the bestiary is angels and demons. Because they're... they're here. They're everywhere. They use stats for angels and demons that are in the... in the uh, monster manual. Again, I wish we could get some more legendary creatures in the bestiary. Angels and demons are nice. They're big, iconic creatures. That's fine. But... Could you imagine if instead of another blurb that says demons act like demons, we got a big boss stat block for Razaketh with all of his unique powers, his little mind games and puppetry things that he likes to play with, because we're not going to get another chance to see Razaketh. Spoilers. Uh, this would have been the place to do it. There's no other supplement that could be like, hey, here's Razaketh. You can fight Razaketh in D&D. More so... I think I want to stop seeing Iconics everywhere. Every plane at this point is, almost every plane, is being given angels, demons, dragons, hydras, and sometimes sphinxes. Some of them make sense. Sphinxes in this setting are great. Angels and demons, as much as I love their flavor, I think they were really well executed. They look very unique, as always. Wizards is very good at that. We don't need them everywhere. At least I don't need them everywhere. I know that they are iconic. I know that a lot of players have their love, and they really want that 1%. But I'm getting a little tired of it. 
I can understand that. And my complaint, I, I like iconic creatures in general. I like angels, I like demons, I think they're big and splashy. But when I look at these supplements, I keep wanting them to be more explicitly different when we get the descriptions of them. Angels on Amonkhet are weird. They've been warped or made or something by Bolas. And they're not like any other angels on planes. So why am I still using the Deva as their stat block? I don't even need a full write-up of the creature. Just like a little extra thing that I can tack on, a monster feature that says, these are different, these are weird, here's how you can make it feel more like you're on Amonkhet when you're fighting these angels or demons. For example, the Cryosphinx that's included alongside the Sphinx's description works really well. It's pretty similar to how Sphinxes already exist in D&D, but there's a different combination of traits that breathes that little extra bit of life into fighting a Sphinx on Amonkhet. We're going to skip over most of the conversions because they are what you expect Giant Scorpions is as Giant Scorpions does, but the other two stat blocks that are included are pretty nice to have. There's the Heart Piercer Manticore, which has all sorts of sharp bits, and the Serpopards! They're so particular. I love the Serpopards. I don't even care that the stat block is mostly a tiger. The Serpopards are so weird. They're, they're cat snakes. They are exactly cat snakes. All right, we've made it through most of this, but we cannot leave you without talking about the appendix because it is... So wild, guys. Because it is so vestigial. Oh, sorry, you mean the appendix at the end of this. Sorry. <laughs> oh, yes, we're going to take a 10-minute digression on the dangers of appendicitis. And, uh, <laughs> Bolas can get to you in unexpected ways. Have you checked out your appendix today? Ooh, um, uh. <laughs> I at least know my parents are fine. They've already had their appendixes removed. Good. Their appendices Good. removed? Is it still appendices if it's the organ? Whatever, they're planeswalkers here. <laughs> sorry, continue. The appendix for this plane shift supplement is Planeswalkers and the Multiverse. The fact is expressed that we have now gone to four different planes in these plane shift articles. So, if you wanted to, you could have a team of Planeswalkers in traditional Adventuring Party style, four characters, that each came from a different plane. This appendix is a little bit muted, I think. When you hear that they're going into a discussion of planeswalking for plane shift supplements, you're expecting something a little bit crunchier, a little bit more mechanically inclined. But what this appendix does is really try and take a step back from that and say, hey, we do not have the time to playtest planeswalking as a big character class or overarching mechanic. So here's the plane shift spell. Planeswalking works a lot like that. Uh... And then past that, it is what you want it to be. Being a Planeswalker doesn't make you more or less of an existing character class. So, uh, go have fun. Also, I, I need a rules call-out thing. Okay. They explicitly say, it doesn't bear much resemblance to the plane shift spell. That it's more like a oh, ritual. No. Oh, oh, no. Oh, no. Ha! Oh, I, I DM entrapped you. Ah, oh, curses. I've been reading comprehension. It's what I'm here for. It's probably fair that we have this appendix as it is. As much as you and I would love an appendix that, or heck, a whole supplement that goes into exactly how planeswalking could work and how you could make it a part of a campaign, we referenced earlier that these are kind of side projects. Their, their financial impact for Wizards is that it probably helps support the art book selling a little bit, and that it does help bridge 
D&D to Magic and Magic to D&D, so you might get some cross-pollination of customers. But ultimately, this is kind of like a gift, I feel like. And the amount of work required to figure out, balance, and describe all of the ins and outs of planeswalking seems like it's probably not worth their time devoting to unless it's something a little more official. Like, if they made a, if they made an actual physical supplement they could print out, I could see someone putting effort into that because it then has a return. But I can't blame James Wyatt and crew for not tackling that immense task here. They're almost certainly not allowed to. One of the concepts that we talked about a little bit in other plane shift discussions is the idea of D&D organized play. There's a little disclaimer at the beginning of each plane shift that says that this is meant to work with D&D 5th edition rules, but has not been playtested and is not sanctioned for organized play. Sanctioned is a really weird word to use in the context of D&D, but it is something that Wizards takes pretty seriously. Organized play events are held at conventions and such. They have a, a rule set that is supposed to be followed. At home, when you're playing D&D with your friends, you, you can fudge a lot of the rules, you can make things easier for people, you can ignore things about the system that you don't like. But for an organized play event, a sanctioned play event, you have to follow certain guidelines both in how you play it and how it is constructed. If a sanctioned product for a D&D organized play event were to be found to be horribly unbalanced in one way or another, that would be a pretty bad black mark against it. And since they don't have the time or resources to dedicate to playtesting this small supplement that a very small subset of players are taking full advantage of, they can't make big sweeping mechanics like this. But I wish they would. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm human. I can say all that I want about how Sanction play this and organize that. But like, I just want to be a planeswalker. I want to, I want to be this special person with mana bonds and a spark and all of these cool, neat, little, intricate things that are special because of how you pull magic from other worlds. Wizards study books. Sorcerers have this bloodline or trait that gives them access to magic. Warlocks make a deal with a, a demon or something. Bards play music real good. Planeswalkers draw from multiple worlds. They pull magic out of the ground. They have connections with so many lands, and I wish that we could get a class that had that baked into its rules, baked into the core of what you're doing. But I understand that they don't always have the time. But that doesn't mean that you and I, in our own various endeavors of role-playing, which we undertake with our friends pretty frequently, it doesn't mean that you and I can't figure out what we want to do for that. And it doesn't mean that everyone out there can't figure out some way they want planeswalking to work for them. It probably shouldn't be super mechanically relevant to the game they're playing, but they can still use it in their stories in a meaningful way, I think. It might just take a little bit of ingenuity. Yeah, and if nothing else, you can still have a really fun time just on Amonkhet. True. This supplement has so much space to play in this world. We thought that Noctaboon was so small, but it's not. It's got life and relationships and things to strive for besides the trials. And this supplement does a lot of work into making Noctamudin feel livable. Despite, you know, the situation. One final thought before we leave the Plane Shift supplement. There's a piece of art on the last page called Final Hour by Raymond Swanland. A great piece of art. It has the five members of the Gatewatch falling at Bolas? Question mark? Yeah, that'd be the verb. Did they jump off something to attack Bolas? If so, why? 
I can believe that Chandra can blast the ground and kind of lower herself carefully. Gideon can do his indestructible thing and clunk really hard. Nisa could grow vines or something and catch herself. What are Jason and Liliana going to do? They're falling! <laughs> You'll notice that Liliana appears to be still on the ledge because that's oh, what she? black mages do. Oh, maybe she is, yeah. Then what's Jace going to do? Is that an illusion uh, of Jace falling? That would make the it, most sense. It could be. I also am pretty convinced that this picture is taken shortly after the shot of Gideon and Jace on that ledge. I think it was strategic planning. The yes, card. Yeah. that was it. And, and here's why I believe this. It is the order in which they are falling. All right. So yep. Chandra is first because while these two chuckleheads were talking it out and figuring out how to plan, she bolts right through the middle of them and just starts falling. She's the first one to go through. Jace then does the typical blue mage thing and reacts, falling immediately after her. Gideon says, I'm the only one who can't die. I should probably go take care of that. And Nyssa wants to be included. Oh, and Liana's going, you idiots, and decides to cast death magic from where she is. Exactly. Headcanon accepted until such a point that we see this in the story. <laughs> well, Jacob, if someone wanted your other theories on Gatewatch relationship dynamics, where could they go? They can find me anywhere they find somebody named Frogger, spelled P-H-R-A-W-G-E-R. -E that's Twitter, that's Tumblr, that's Reddit. And to save you all a lot of trouble, all of your ships are wrong. And Bryce, if someone wanted to commiserate with you over the snake and naga dichotomy, where would they be able to find you? They can find me on Tumblr as Walking Atlas, on Twitter as Walking underscore Atlas, or you can email us at the.atlas.walks at gmail.com. For more Talking Atlas, find us on iTunes, Google Play, or our website, opalnebula.com. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard today, please consider finding us on Patreon at patreon.com slash talkingatlas. So long as Wizards keeps providing us with these plane shift supplements, we here at Talking Atlas will be more than happy to discuss them with you. And until next time, happy planeswalking. <laughs>